Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews donors, thought leaders, and professionals in the field of fundraising. Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand, original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. We're thrilled to feature the development debrief on Evertrue Studios Podcast Network. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. It is great to be back. Season 7 was a whirlwind of landmarks for the development debrief. We surpassed 50,000 downloads and 100 episodes. We're officially an LLC. And along the way, I've been working on a partnership with Evertrue, which will last the duration of FY23. I am so excited to be part of Evertrue Studios, aligned with colleagues that I respect and trust. The launch of my partnership with Evertrue is the reason that I'm currently at the Case Summit in Chicago. Check out my Instagram at devdebrief for live updates on my story and posts of the amazing leaders who are convening as you're listening right now. But back to season eight. I wanted to start with Lydia Finette because her story transcends industries and generations. As I read Lydia's book, I knew I wanted to share her story with all of you. So today's guest, Lydia Finette, is a global thought leader and Christie's ambassador who has led auctions for more than 600 organizations, raising over half a billion dollars for nonprofits globally. Lydia is represented by CAA and travels internationally as a keynote speaker, helping people unlock their sales potential and empowering women in the workplace. She was named one of New York's most influential women by Gotham Magazine and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and Cranes, and has appeared in Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Vanity Fair, and Town & Country. Her widely acclaimed book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, was published by Simon & Schuster and optioned for TV by Netflix. Lydia's second book, Claim Your Confidence, will be published in March of 2023. Lydia, welcome to The Debrief. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. One of the things I love is having people on who aren't traditional nonprofit fundraisers. You are definitely a fundraiser, but it's in a totally different sphere. And so I I welcome your new and fresh look on all of this. I definitely have a completely different skill set, I think, than many people who are in the fundraising world, just because I I'm able to almost parachute in and out of different fundraising opportunities. So I like to say I have a very holistic view of the entire process. So I'm excited to share my wisdom. What you do isn't really relationship building, but actually it is, you know, when you've talked about how you try to engage people in the room, it's just sort of a, you know, New York minute way of doing it, right? It's not over a year and a half. Absolutely. A lot of times when I'm on stage, I'll get off and people almost feel like we have a relationship because they've raised their hand. And as an auctioneer, I'm always seeking out the person who is the most excited to be there because they're usually my foil for the rest of the night. And after that, I'll have people come up and if I've identified them by a certain piece of clothing or perhaps because of a pair of glasses, or maybe they look like a movie star. So I've given them a name for the night, they will refer to themselves as that person in perpetuity for, you know, anytime I run into them, anytime I see them at an event year over year, 
oh, I'm the woman in the red dress from five years ago. So I do feel like I have this funny relationship with people. And I always sort of think to myself, well, there are actually a lot of women who wear red dresses who then become the woman in the red dress. But you know, to every person who's had that sort of 15 seconds of being called out from stage, it's really fun. And it makes it a, a really fun relationship because it's a very happy and positive thing to stand on stage and, and have people give generously and be able to be positive about that gift. Having fun with it is something that we as fundraisers maybe don't do enough. It doesn't have to be so serious and it doesn't have to be dry at all. You know, we can make it fun. And I think that was one of the big takeaways I took from the book. Absolutely. And I truly believe if people are having fun in anything that they're doing, if the sort of tone of it is appropriate and the, the moment is appropriate to have fun or humor, it's the most effective way to sell. When mm -hmm. I get on stage, when I first started taking auctions, it was really taught as a skill that was similar to what we do at Christie's in the art world, where you sit in a room of people who have shown up to bid on art. They know why they're there. They have a budget in mind. And your job as the auctioneer is to maybe push them out of that budget a little bit, hopefully maybe two or three times what they wanted to spend. And I would use the same skills that I'd been taught by the auctioneering coach on stage as a charity auctioneer. And it's a very serious thing when you are selling someone's collection or you're selling something that's selling for millions of dollars. But as a charity auctioneer, that is not what you're doing. You're getting on stage right. to sell something that a lot of people show up for galas and have no idea there's an auction taking place. They don't know that there is something that they're planning to bid on or not planning to bid on. And frankly, a lot of them don't really want the auction to take place anyway. So getting up there and selling in that very serious academic tone just was not yielding results for me. So you coined the strike method in the book, which I absolutely loved. I want you to tell the listeners about that, but I also want to just talk about why performance is important in fundraising and selling. It, obviously we want to be authentic, but there is something to having a, a certain layer of performance that I just find fascinating. So let's start with the strike method. So the strike method is essentially what I call it when I am backstage waiting to go on and the adrenaline is pumping. And if you're in public speaking, or even if you have to give up and give a speech and you find public speaking unnerving, this will completely resonate with you, but you feel the adrenaline rushing and it feels like you've passed a cop going hundred miles an hour. And I so many times would have people come up to me and say, I don't know how you get up there and do that. And I really started to think about what it takes to walk out in front of a thousand people with a piece of paper and then the expectation that with four lines of text, you're going to raise a million dollars for an organization. And what is it that makes me transition from the person who's seated at that dinner to the person who is then on stage in this very strong, powerful capacity? And I realized it really came down to this gavel strike that people have always said, you know, when we hear the, the gavel hit the podium three times, we know you're getting up there. I don't really know when it started. It must've started pretty early, but it just became something that I do every single time. And it makes me feel calm. It makes me feel powerful and it makes me feel in control. So what I say about the strike method is whatever you're doing in whatever capacity in your life, you are speaking, or you're having a difficult conversation, or there's something where you really need to feel powerful, find your strike method. And the strike method for me is really that it's just something that transitions me. It helps me move from a place where I'm sort of on my back foot to something where I'm coming out strong. So I say it could be physical, it could be mental, but something that really makes you think, okay, from this moment forward, you're getting nothing but power. <laughs>
what I compare it to is when I'm about to go into a meeting that I know is a solicitation or even a first time meeting with someone who I know has the ability to give a really large gift. I pop myself up and sometimes outside of the meeting, I'll just write myself, you know, three lines of notes that I know I want to get out of the meeting. And I read it literally right before I walk in, even though I know what it is. And that I guess has sort of been my strike method in the past. Yeah. And I think it makes you feel powerful to feel like you have something that's within your control in a situation as you go into that solicitation or as I go on stage that is largely out of your control. I walk out into a different stage, a different audience every single night. I never know if they're going to give, if they're going to feel like they don't want to bid, if they're going to talk, if they don't, I can't control that. But what I can control is my performance on stage. And I know if I go out there with that gavel strike, it'll get their attention and I can dive right in and I can really put it all out there so that the performance that I'm giving is going to be consistent with what I want to bring to the stage every single time. The same way that I, I'm sure that when you go in for a solicitation, you want to feel like you've walked out doing your best every single time. Yes. And that's why it is in a way a performance. Absolutely. I truly believe selling is a performance Mm -hmm. and going back to the humorous piece or the fun piece. I think that a lot of selling and getting someone to trust you, which is essentially what sales is, is being in a place where the person feels a connection to you. They also feel like they might want to talk to you again. I think that's a very important part of selling that if you're going to be in a relationship, the person feels like you're meeting them on their level. And I always think that humor and having fun, if that's a natural skill set for you, is a wonderful way to do that. So you point out people in room of perhaps, you know, hundreds of people, you'll point out a dress or something that you see. Why do you think that's effective? Because people love to be called out, not everyone. And I can usually tell that after this much time on stage, but most people really enjoy a moment of shine. And if I say to someone and I see their hand go up early on and you can tell that they're wiggling in their seat to be called out, I'll call them out because at the end of the day, if I have a room of 900 people, probably 90 of them maximum will bid over the course of that evening, either in the auction or in the paddle raise. So I have to keep the other 800 plus people engaged. And if I don't, then all of a sudden everyone's talking and I lose the energy. I lose the focus of the room. So my goal in an auction is always to get out there, bring the energy I want from the room in a huge way. I walk out with a huge smile, big gavel strike, big, strong voice to let them know this auction's taking place and I'm in charge. And once I start, it's all about engaging those people so that if the crowd starts talking or there's a lot of, you know, that sort of low din that gets louder and louder over the course of an auction, which always happens, no matter how great the auction is at that time, I will often think to myself, okay, what is the person in the red dress doing? Is that person looking at me right now? I'll call them out again. So whether or not that person's bidding, they've become part of the show. And the interesting thing about that is usually if I call out one person in a section, the whole section will pay attention. It's definitely (laughs) their table, probably the people who are next to them. And so it just becomes this sort of thing where all of a sudden everyone's thinking to themselves, oh, maybe she'll call me out. So I need to pay attention. And it just keeps the room more engaged on every level. The most fun thing to do is call people out by a sort of celebrity doppelganger or sometimes one that is absolutely and completely not at all what they look like. Or, you know, I'll point out someone who's in their 80s or 90s and say something, oh, it's Brad Pitt from Legends of the Fall. And everyone thinks it's hilarious because, of course, 
someone like Brad Pitt from Legends of the Falls is probably in his 20s and this person is in his 80s, but he thinks it's funny, <laughs> thinks it's funny and I can always say at the end, well, I called you Brad Pitt in front of a room of a thousand people. So if nothing else, give me some, give me a paddle raise level, please. <laughs> well, um, I love the story and- of the real celebrity, Matt Damon. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and then you find yourself on stage with a celebrity who is calling you the wrong name. And again, if you are in a place where you feel confident and powerful, it doesn't matter because a person is a person, no matter what level of success they have reached in their life. And that's really what that story is about. It's just to say, as my father has always said, everyone puts their boots on the same way in the morning. So if you are doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're good at what you're doing, you're not gonna get intimidated by people because of a title or because of who they are, you're gonna feel on par with them. And that's a really huge place to improve your confidence and always be aiming towards over the course of your life. I totally agree. I remember early on in my career, I had a meeting that was set up with someone who had their apartment on Architectural Digest. It was a full page spread and I was like, how am I going to go there? What am I going to, what am I even going to talk to this guy about? And I remember my dad said the exact same thing. He said, he's a person and he wants to talk to you about the institution. And you just try to not think about that and just think about him as another person. So I love that we got the same advice from our our dad. And I think it is the most important part of business because a lot of times people will self-select. They'll say, oh, I could never meet with that person because they're a CEO, or I could never talk to that person because they invented this or something to that effect. And we're in the same business because you do fundraising at the highest level. And I do fundraising at the highest level in different capacities. And part of the good thing for me is half of the time, I have absolutely no idea who anyone is on stage and half the time I really can't even see them that well. So whether or not I know them is immaterial because the lights are usually in my eyes to some extent, but in many ways, what I find is the more I joke with someone who everybody treats with kid gloves, the more of a reaction I get from them. And it's usually overwhelmingly positive. And when I tell that story of Matt Damon, I say at the very end that that was the takeaway for me was that no one had more fun with that joke than Matt Damon. I mean, he thought it was hilarious. He was a great sport about it and just further, further reinforced my love of the Bourne series. (laughs) People who are listening, you're going to have to read the book to get the full story. But the, the point here really is exactly making it light, keeping it fun. And, you know, when you walk into someone's office or someone's home and you see something that you love, point it out and make a comment about it. You know, you don't have to be stiff. And I think that's really what this is here. Yeah. And I think it's what sets you apart is yes. the, comfortable, the comfortable nature of your persona. Yes. Other people tend to be fearful of, or tend to treat, as I said before, with kid gloves, mm-hmm. if you're meeting someone on their level and you're acting as if you're their peer or just a friend in many ways, in many cases, I believe you're going to get a much more authentic relationship out of them because you're not treating them like someone who sits in an ivory tower. You're treating them like somebody who you would sit next to at a coffee shop. And that makes them at ease as well. So let's shift to talking about how you got your job at Christie's. I have to tell you, I was, I was reading this in my apartment, you know, felt like I could relate. Tell us the story of how you called pre-caller ID and, and made <laughs> these connections. So I had really never heard of the auction world when I was growing up. My parents were not art collectors at all. And I was reading a Vanity Fair article and I came across this story of the auction world. And that was really the first time I knew anything about it. And it talked all about the 
the auction of Princess Diana's dresses, which took place at Christie's and Park Avenue. And I really thought to myself, I don't know what this place is, but I remember sort of talking about the women who worked there and how they traveled internationally and they were all dressed up and everything in the article appealed to everything that I've ever loved, which so glamorous in retrospect makes me feel like I might be a little bit more superficial than I'd like to admit, but there we are. And that was kind of it for me. I really fell in love with this mystique. And I started as I often do when I want something talking about it endlessly. I told all of my friends that I wanted to work for an auction house and they were all sort of like, I don't even know what that is. So we can't really be helpful here. And finally at a cocktail party in Baton Rouge, which is where my parents live, I met a woman who was interning at the time and had just become an assistant at Christie's. And, you know, I, I remember writing something about that on a, a blog and someone wrote in the comments, well, if that isn't the definition of a connection, I don't know what is. And I remember thinking, but I don't think you understand like, people in Baton Rouge don't talk about collecting art. I mean, to me, this really was like one of those moments. I, I have never met anyone who works in Baton, who lives in Baton Rouge, who has ever worked at Christie's since. So it was really one of those, again, life moments that I feel was set up and I had the chance and I took it. I took her card. I took the internship coordinator's information down from her and I started calling the internship coordinator. And at the time, because I grew up in Louisiana, it wasn't as if I grew up in New York city where I feel like here people know that you have to apply for internships at some point in high school or college, it's part of your resume. Right. It's part of the track that ultimately gets you the job that you want. But growing up in Louisiana, that wasn't really what we were told or taught. And that really just wasn't part of what we were thinking. And so I called up Mary Libby probably a couple of months before the internship program started in June. And her first response was, oh, honey, the internship program has been full since, you know, let's call it five years ago at this point. <laughs> it was not open for just a random caller. And I just refused to take no for an answer. And as I said in the book, this was pre-caller ID. So I would call her every morning around the same time. And God bless her, she always picked up because she didn't know it was me. And so I would kind of ask the same question, you know, is there a wait list? Could I get on it? And she was just sort of like, there's just not going to be any movement on a, a wait list. This is all really wrapped up. And I just realized that I needed a different strategy for asking the same question, which is something I'm sure everyone can relate to. You've been told no, how do you take that and move on? And so I basically just wrote down like a couple of questions that might get a different answer or elicit a different angle that I could move in on. And one of them was, why is the internship capped at 30 people? And so when I asked her that question, the next day, it was sort of day 14. And I was like, it's me. And she was about to hang up. And I said, can I just ask you a question? Why are there only 30 people in the internship program? And she said, well, every afternoon or twice a week, the interns go to the museums and the docents don't want more than 15 people on either of the tours. And that to me was the answer to everything because I sort of said, well, I don't have to go to the museums. And in fact, I would imagine that people would prefer to have an intern who could stay in the afternoon. And let's say someone doesn't show up because of course these are college kids. And this was before internships were something that people really coveted. I think people just did not show up for work. And so of course, over the course of an entire semester, I ended up going on a lot of the museum tours because people didn't show up for work. And so it was just this amazing moment where I realized, as she said, you know, I don't, you know what, I'm not going to say no, let me just let me figure some stuff out. And she called me back an hour later and I had the internship and it was a modified internship. But as I said, it ended up being an internship just like anyone else. And what I learned from that was that you have to keep asking the question, you know, the timing might not be right. There are other things that may not sort of work out for you at that moment, but if you can think of a different angle and you'll show that you 
are excited and motivated, sometimes there's an in. So don't be scared to ask the question. I love this so much. And I think it relates to everything. It relates to career growth, the actual fundraising itself, asking the question over and over again, does build resilience and confidence. You know, just be flexible. Success, as Martha Stewart said in my first book, success seldom comes in the form that you think it will. And I believe that that is the truest statement I've ever read truly, because I've seen that so many times in the course of my life where I thought something would look a certain way when I was successful in quotes. And over time, I've realized that that's not the case at all. It's success, but it comes in whatever form it is. And if you're willing to accept it, it's success. Let's talk about storytelling. The, the way you decided to write the book was through stories. And I love that because that's how I've set up my podcast. I want people to share their stories and glean from that. Why do you think storytelling is such an important point of connection uh, with people that you're selling with? In the South, it's a huge way of, of talking, of learning. Certainly, this is the way I was raised with my father who grew up in Louisiana. Storytelling is really the easiest way to relate to someone because you're telling them either by telling something from your own life and trying to find a point of connectivity or something that you've heard that is relatable to what someone is saying. I have been a huge reader my whole life. And I wrote my book in, I mean, really the better part of three months. And I remember the editor of the editor and actually the publisher of Gallery Books, where I published, said to me, I can't believe you wrote the book so quickly. Where did you learn to write? And I said, Well, I've been reading my whole life. So I understand a story arc. I understand what is interesting and how you bring a reader into a book. And I truly believe that if you want to tell somebody, something and make a point showing them something that's relatable that's happened to you or talking about something that you've seen that helps them think, oh, I could be in that situation and do something similar is a much more effective strategy than standing you know, on top of a soapbox and, and preaching to everyone about what you think is best. It's like, that's great that you think that, but how do you know that? How did you learn that lesson? You know, I love that you talked about reading that and thinking, oh my gosh, that's such a, a, an interesting way to get an internship. And I've had so many young women say to me, you know, I really never thought about the fact that I could actually follow up with, okay, so I know that this internship isn't available, but is there something else? Like, it never occurred to me. And I said, you know, if there's ever anything you want, just ask the question differently. You can ask it 20 times. It might annoy someone, but they might also have a different suggestion for you. But I'll tell you one thing, they will think of you as a go-getter for the rest of their lives. <laughs> Speaking of go-getter, the negotiation chapter where you talk about asking for a raise and asking to build a new team, again, I was just completely gripped with the way you wrote that and talked about that. And I felt like I was cheering you on as you shared that it worked, but I'm really passionate about this. As we know, women do not ask for raises at the same rate as men, and it is an uncomfortable topic for a lot of people. Can you give us a little summary of what happened with the negotiation and how you got to having your own team and a new department at Christie's? Absolutely. So I had been working at the company for almost a decade and I was running the events department and client entertaining in the auction world is hugely important. And it is something that people really focus on. So it's a very high stakes job. It's very intense. You do work all hours of all days, every single month and every single year of those 10 years had just been packed with events. And I frankly was done with events. I didn't want to do it anymore. I was ready to move on. 
there wasn't a natural next step for me in that department. I'd propose something else. But I had also seen during the recession that there was an opportunity for a department that really focused on partnerships. The company had really globalized after the recession and as we were coming out of the recession. And I thought this was an area where we as a company could have a global department that focused on partnerships instead of doing things regionally. So it was something that I had thought about for a while and really had never done anything about, but those two things were going on simultaneously. At the same time, I was at brunch with a friend of mine and she announced to everyone that she was buying a one bedroom apartment. And I was absolutely floored because at the time I was making such a ridiculously low salary. And sometimes when I tell people now where people are aware of salaries, what I was making at the age of 30, after almost a decade in the company, I mean, people's jaws dropped to the floor, but I had been told for 10 years that I worked for the glamor of my job and how lucky was I to work for this company. And there are a million women who would want my job, which by the way, is all true. All of those things were hundred percent true. But the difference was that I was doing the job and I was doing it well. I was well-respected. People trusted me. And at that point, I had two women who were in their very early 20s who did not have that much experience. So at the time, I had all the intel. I had everything I needed to be powerful in my negotiation. But it really took that conversation for me to feel like, what am I doing wrong? You have the same job at a different company. You're able to afford a one-bedroom apartment. I'm living in a one-bedroom apartment with my friend, and we have a wall down the middle of one of the bedrooms. It also is our living room. Like This does not make sense to me. So I sort of pulled her to the side, and I said this to her. I was like, I thought we were all you know, like eating hors d'oeuvre, and that was our dinner because we didn't have enough money to go out for it. She was like, what are you talking about? Like, What world are you living in? And I just felt so betrayed on every level because when you've worked for a company for so long, you believe they are your family and your family takes care of you. Mm-hmm. And that was not the case in my moment in that time. And it really lit a fire under me. And I'm so grateful for it because it's lit a fire that stayed underneath me ever since. And really, I wanted to write this chapter because I felt like it was so important for people who work in industries that are considered glamorous to actually think about this. And so Essentially, I went into my boss's office after doing some research and realizing that not only was I not making like sort of half of what I should be making, I was actually making closer to a third, not even half, a third of what I was making. And it, it abutted with a new head of HR starting who pulled me aside after a meeting. And I mean, you have to be really underpaid for the head of HR to pull you aside after a meeting and said, you are so underpaid. I don't like, I don't really understand what's happened here. And it, I just went home and sobbed. I just could not believe what had taken place over this decade and how I had not advocated for myself. And even if I had, how I'd been sort of patted on the head with a, it's okay. You know, you, you're fine. You're, you get, you're lucky to have this job. And it really fueled me to walk into my boss's office. And I basically said, listen, I'm giving my two weeks notice. And it was right before a huge evening sale everyone there kind of knew exactly what I was valuable for at that point. And that really became for me, the moment where I didn't even mean to tell him that it just came out of, it came out and I was like, I'm leaving in two weeks. And he was just like, wait, what? And he was like, what, what would it take to make you stay? And I just remember thinking like, oh my God, what if I'd asked this question four years ago? What if I'd asked this question six years ago? And I just launched in, I want to start a new department. I want you to put me up to market that rate. And I want this international title that's commiserate with what this job would be. And he sort of said, okay, I'm going to go to HR. And by that afternoon, everything was approved except the international title. 
And I remember he said to me, uh, we can give you everything except the international title, but when you seen the, sign the deal for your first international um, partnership, then we'll give you the title. So that's step one. And then step two, you know, you'll get the title. And I said, there is no step two because without step one, I leave. Again, none of this was true. I just was like, what at this point, what do I have to lose? And, and that was it. And basically by the end of the afternoon, the head of HR had signed off on everything. And I went in and it actually dovetailed perfectly because my roommate at the time had lost her job and was leaving the city. And I had really been freaked out about finding another roommate. And I didn't have to find another roommate because I could actually afford the apartment by myself, uh, you know, and I just think sometimes timing is the craziest thing. And I remember signing that yeah. lease in my building that I was living in and we had a pressurized wall and taking it down and getting new furniture. And it just felt like such a New York moment on every level mm -hmm. and such a life moment. And I think any boss that I've had ever since would tell you, I mean, one of the first things I have said in almost every meeting I've ever had is I want to talk about comp. I always want to talk about comp and I'm not scared to talk about comp. And, you know, if people don't feel like I'm worth what I'm getting paid, then that's fine. It is what it is. At least I'm asking the question. It doesn't scare me and it doesn't intimidate me to talk about money because I understand that unless I talk about it, no one is going to give it to me. And I think that's what I proved to myself at the age of 30 when I saw that after almost 10, 10 years in a company. And listen, I want to be really clear and say that not all negotiations go well. Sometimes you ask for the money, it's a flat no, but I always feel better about asking the question because if I don't, then I feel like I walk out of the meeting and I failed myself. So I hope that motivates people to ask that question. Yeah. And you had said in the book, you know, you had to be, you had to believe in it so much that you would have been willing to leave in two weeks. Like right. there was that much on the line. And I think that's, that's really what people have to realize if they are going to go in and say that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I also love that this was sparked by a conversation of two women talking about finances. Yeah. And I've started having some of those conversations with my peers. And especially as, you know, recently some colleagues have gotten new jobs. I've sort of asked them like, what was the range? What was, what was it like to negotiate? Tell me, you know, did they come in where you thought they would, or was it higher or lower? And I just can't encourage people enough to have those conversations. Otherwise you really won't know. You won't know. And again, it's money. At the end of the day, you're talking to a business. Even if there's a person who's speaking on behalf of the business, it's a business mm -hmm. and a business will never love you. <laughs> a business yep. is not a person yep. and you are a line item on a PL. You can get fired the next day and it means nothing to them. So at the end of the day, even if you love your company, love yourself more and ask the question. So you've recently made a bit of a transition. You're now coaching and your second book is on the way. Yes. How has that been? Tell us about your coaching practice and your second book. If you think that the answer is always yes, and you can figure it out, then all of a sudden I was doing one-on-one -on -one coaching and it became another arm of what I was doing. And actually, Catherine, that's how we met because yeah. a woman who I was coaching was asking me how she could possibly get on different podcasts. And I said to her, podcasters need content, just like you want to be out there. So start reaching out. She's like, do you think I could? So you have to remember, you never ask for permission. You ask for forgiveness. So she started reaching out and then she would email me back and say, one of one podcasts. Like I made it. I, I asked this person, they said, yes. And I said, isn't it easy once you realize that that's actually the way life works? So I have, I've sort of fallen into business coaching for different large scale financial institutions. And so I coach their senior executives, which is such an exciting offshoot of that. And frankly, is something that became content for my book. So again, all of these things 
feed into each other as long as you're willing to try and, and say yes to the opportunities. And can you share the name of your second book? Claim Your Confidence, Unlock Your Superpower and Live the Life You Deserve. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> it's lots of stories, new stories, which I think are really fun. As I was reading The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, I think that powerful and confident could almost be interchangeable in all of that. So it just sounds like you're digging that much deeper into, you know, some of these topics. Is it yeah. still as much sharing about your own life? It is. And okay. it really starts the first chapter of my second book starts at basically right after the book launch. So I really talk about the literally landing in San Francisco two weeks after my New York tour and not to give anything away, but I basically have a, a book signing that is not at all what I thought it was going to be. And I talk about the importance of understanding that confidence is being confident in yourself, no matter what is going on around you, because objectively, as you will see in the story, it was pretty bad. And, you know, I'm at the high of the high. I've just launched a book. I've had two amazing weeks of events in New York and in San Francisco, it was not the case. And I talk about the importance of understanding that even in the highs, there are lows. <laughs> and once you realize that, you realize that you have to have confidence. You have to shore yourself up because that's what life's about. You can be at the top of your game and still have a rock bottom moment. But if you're strong, it doesn't matter because you'll be fine throughout it. And if you know that, that's where you will always be confident. And do you think you really have to fuel that for yourself or do you turn to community or your partner or your mentor to help you get through that? I like to say that confidence is something that you need to build up in yourself. So it is iron strong, but you scaffold yourself with your community and your family and your partner so that in those moments of weakness, and you know that I was in a horrible car accident on Halloween and yeah. I knew I would be okay, but what kept me and what kept my family afloat during that time was that community. So again, I think it's really building up the core of yourself to believe that you have the confidence to overcome anything, but also to feel that it is not a weakness to lean on other people in times when it all seems like too much, because at times it is going to seem like too much, especially if you have something monumental happen in your life. But those two things together, I think are really what make life full and amazing and really something that, you know, in the highs and lows, you're excited to live. Well, I want to end with the, the story that you ended with in the book, which was creating these breakfasts of bringing women together and basically just creating a forum for people to talk about work and life and how they get it all done. You know, I have to tell you, Lydia, I was talking with a friend um, as I was reading your book. This was maybe six weeks ago. And she was telling me how frustrated she was feeling that she was, she wasn't feeling supported by her boss and she was questioning her own capabilities. And it just got me to thinking that there are so many incredibly smart, amazing, beautiful, talented women that question themselves. And so, you know, creating that forum was huge. And you asked this question to your reader, which is like, what is your breakfast? Mm -hmm. What are you going to create and build? And I just thought that was the most beautiful way to end the book. So I guess this isn't really a question, but <laughs> I'm really just telling you how much it resonated with me. Spread the wealth, start the networking moments, help other women rise to the occasion so that when you're looking around, you're looking at both men and women and they are successful because of what they've done. And it feels great. And it doesn't feel like, oh, she's the one woman in the room because she's the token woman. It's like, no, she's the one woman in the room because she clawed her way there. So get other women <laughs> Boom. You know, I mean, really, that's that is what I saw certainly in my career. There were sort of one or two women at the top, and 
they were trying everything they could to just stay there because there was one position for them, but it doesn't look like that now. And that's what these networking breakfasts and these networking cocktails are going to do. They're going to help everybody help each other. You have inspired me so much, Lydia. I can't say it enough. And I would love to end with my signature question, which is what do you know for sure? Nobody can sell you the way that you can sell you. So don't be afraid to promote yourself. Don't be afraid to ask the questions and put yourself out there because at the end of the day, you're worth whatever you want to be worth in life. So claim your confidence, get out there, live the life you want and the life you deserve and don't be ashamed to do it. Thank you. I hope that Lydia's message was as energizing for you as it is for me. Reach out and let me know if you decide to read Lydia's book or start your own version of a breakfast. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you have a great week. In the meantime, don't forget to check out the Instagram at devdebrief and my new website, www.devdebrief.com.